From Santa Barbara, California, the Timeless Voyager series, where the knowledge is timeless and you are the Voyager. Interviews with leading-edge authors and speakers, psychic phenomena and the unexplained, UFOs, extraterrestrial encounters, government cover-ups, alternative health care, new technologies. Fasten your cosmic seatbelts and join me, your host, Bruce Stephen Holmes, the Timeless Voyager. Hello, everyone. Bruce Stephen Holmes, Timeless Voyager. Now, today, my guest is Dale Pond. He's a returning guest. He's been on, my goodness, um, I think three or four times now. And I, rather than go through a, a long litany of information, let me just say this. Dale is an incredible, and I'm going to use the word inventor, although he might not describe himself that way. But he is certainly an incredible historian. He uh, has a subject that is absolutely amazing because he spends a great deal of time learning about and telling us all, educating us all, about some of the greatest uh, scientists from the past who have been long forgotten by our scientists And so it's good for us to learn about these people. And I just think I'll leave that as my hook. Welcome to the show, Dale. Hi, Bruce. I'm glad to be back with you. All right. Who are we going to talk about today? Who are you going to educate us about? Well, I want to talk about uh, Walter Russell, a well-known scientist and artist. And he was a polymath. You know, he did a lot of things in his life, architect, businessman. Um, as interesting as it is, he's the one who introduced figure skating to America, brought it over from Europe. A really interesting person. And now, uh, I noticed, a lot about yeah, let Go me ahead. just say, I noticed when I was on uh, the uh, net looking at different things, he's also an artist, is that correct? Yes, famous and, artist. That's some of that stuff is absolutely incredible, and I'm going to include those pictures as we go ahead. But um, go ahead, and I'll just try to I'll try I'll try to have a reason for being here today. But you should just go for it. Well, I wanted to talk about an aspect of his science and philosophy writings called "Seeing Anybody Talk About." And um, most of the presentations on Russell's work are simply other people reading what he wrote. And um, I've noticed an aspect of his uh, writings that I haven't heard anybody else talk about or write about or speak about or anything. And I thought I'd bring that up and bring it out into the public and, you know, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, but once you see this in his writings, he wrote more about this than probably any other topic, and yet you don't hear about it. So I want to to talk about that a little bit and uh, bring it out into the public conversation. 
that's the only reason I'm bringing this up. Um, Russell talked a lot about um, the still magnetic light, and he used a lot of synonyms for that phrase, uh, one which was a fulcrum or balance, and a number of other phrases, lots of uh, synonyms. And from our research with Tom Bearden and John Keeley and some other people, um, we wonder about the ultimate source of all force and energy. And so that that's what uh, Russell was uh, referring to. It's from that stillness that all other energy comes. Uh, modern science calls it uh, scalar or scalar potential. Keeley call it equilibrium or latent force or latent energy. And um, I came to realize that it was that released energy that Keeley was tapping into to run his later machines. And, um, you know, I've been reading this stuff for years, and I didn't realize it. And one, not one day, but over a period of years, I've been studying the scalar thing. And, and I began to see, well, that's what Keeley did. He tapped into that scalar potential, which he called disturbance of equilibrium. You got the scalar force sitting there or scalar potential. And once you disturb it, this different kinds of energy can come out of it depending how you disturb it. And when you go look in the Russell readings or writings, he talks about that almost endlessly. I mean, I think he wrote more about that than any other subject once you see it. Um, now, is it is it your understanding, and, and, and I I think I'm I'm on the right track here, but the uh, the Vedas, for instance, talk about this. Um, the they call it, I think, the absolute. Um, different, um, different. I, I'll say different religions, different philosophies. They talk about this unmanifest. I can't call it stuff if it's unmanifest, but this thing. Yeah. Is, that, is that your understanding of what we're talking about? Same thing. Uh, over a period of several years, I built a list of synonyms for those terms. Because once you see it, you start seeing it everywhere. And in religion, they call it God. In um, Buddhism, I think they call it the Tao. And you can look back through all this literature and everything, and you can see everybody's talking about this, but nobody really nailed it down so that we could use it in a practical, scientific way. Until Keeley did it, Keeley made all his machines to operate on that principle. Russell made a couple of machines that had that principle in them. And I believe Tesla referred to it. Bearden was all over it. He said that uh, the Soviets had discovered this back in the 60s. And um, they got familiar enough with it, they, they actually made a healing device using it. And then later they, they further developed that knowledge and they made a, a better healing device. So the knowledge of this is coming out, and it's rather extraordinary because this is uh, modern-day people talk about zero point. Well, zero point's not the exact word, but that's the, the, kind of the idea, you know, tapping the zero point energy. So a lot of people talk about that. And the free energy people are all over it. They're wondering, 
what is the scale of potential and how can we tap into it and release it and get electricity and magnetism or whatever else they're looking for. And um, I just want to bring people's attention to this dynamic. Sometimes in the past it was called the Divine Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. It's, it's three. So you got the, the undisturbed equilibrium, and when you disturb it, it, it creates a polar dynamic. They get positive and negative, male and female, black and white. And so you have non-motion in the, the oneness, the stillness. No motion at all, that's why it's scalar. But once you disturb it, it becomes polar, like a magnet. So you get positive and negative energy, electricity is positive and negative. And that gives you motion, kinetic motion. So from the stillness, you get this kinetic motion to drive machines with. And that's what Kaylee was doing. And that's what Russell attempted to do in his, his two devices that he built that, I know, that I'm aware of. And Schaumburger did the same thing. So all these guys gone back to that original premise. And they say you can't get something from nothing, but it's no such thing as nothing. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's important. Isn't that what's what's happening right now with the CERN project? They're beginning to realize that there's no such thing as nothingness, but that there are layers of this thing that that just I it's astounding, I guess, how deep how deeply this goes, but apparently when they get to the end of it, there is actually nothing. Now, when I say nothing, it's I, I, I think that it's not really nothing. It's just that I think it's beyond our senses. So from our point of view, it's nothing. Is that a, a, a reasonable explanation? Yeah, yeah that's pretty good because our senses only detect motion, different types of motion in the form of vibration. So this nothingness this uh, vacuum or cosmic universal state uh, undifferentiated state there's no motion so we can't detect it our mind our higher minds can detect it because that's what our higher minds are and uh, being physical beings we can only deal with motions as you know Russell wrote about that a lot too he says our our sensory bodies or physical bodies can only deal with motion whether it's an acoustic motion sound vibration or light vibration but to get to the ultimate uh, part the undifferentiated mind uh, we have to learn to meditate and get very very quiet to become one with that state and he was really big on that. He talked a lot about that because we can't go from our kinetic physics, our Newtonian physics that we deal with every day to that higher physics in our egos and in our intellects. We have to change our consciousness in order to start grasping these higher concepts because our ego can't do it. Our ego just won't do it because it deals in motion. And that higher state is non-motion. So... Um, which is why Keeley's work is laying there all these years, and the same for Russell's work is is uh, very few people have uh, modified their consciousness enough to be able to grasp those higher concepts. 
And uh, I've had, I've struggled with it for years and years and years. When I stuck that into this, I, I was just a Newtonian guy like everybody else. And But as we worked on the dinosaur and we dug and dug and trying to figure out what was going on, uh, your mind starts to change and you start to become familiar with more subtleties that our egos won't see, can't see. But then you start becoming aware of them mentally in a certain type of mentality. And you can start to say, okay, I get this. You know, I can, I can see how this works now. But to replicate it on a bench in a mechanical model, well, that's altogether a different animal. You know, Keeley was a genius at that. So we're still working. We're still learning, still growing. Uh, but how do we tap in? How do we disturb the equilibrium? What he did, just to give you an idea, was no, he when you say when you say he, who are you talking about right now? John Keeley. Oh, Keeley. Okay, I just want to make sure we had the right segue yeah, okay. here. Yeah, he would create a mechanical contrivance within which he would establish a zone of perfect stillness or quietness or vacuum. And then he developed more mechanisms to disturb that quiet, still vacuum to get the effects that he wanted, whether it was rotation for a motor or dissolution of uh, molecules and atoms or whatever the case may be. <clears throat> so we're, we're studying that. Uh, that, by the way, is called a bridge. You get the mind force, the still quiet mind force. And then you get the mechanical manifestation. And there's a space between those two things. And Keeley called it a bridge, and I'm calling it a bridge because that's pretty much what it is. What bridges those two realms? There's a certain amount of mechanics, and I believe that music plays a big role in that process. Uh, quantum physics, quantum mechanics today will deny vehemently that there is any connection whatsoever between the quantum world and the physical world. He said there's there's no laws or principles that operate between the two realms. Well, well that is great. that is changing though. There are there are quantum physicists now that I've or at least I think I've read who are saying now that the quanta state seems to be the same thing as what we would call I don't know the Newtonian state if you want to. But apparently there's a larger group now that <clears throat> believes that this separation that the original quantum physicists said was completely different, apparently they're both the same thing. So am I off on this? or? Well, you're right. It's, it's, I was wrong in stating that it, doesn't, it didn't at one point recognize any connection, but now there's more and more starting to, you know, there's got to be a connection because you look at something and it changes the phenomena. So, you know, they're recognizing that there, is, that there are connections, and I guess maybe they're trying to figure out how those connections are and how they function. Because, uh, you know, Keely would draw a symbol on the wall, and the motor across the room would start. So he understood that connection enough to engineer it. Well, if he knew it 120 years ago, we can figure it out today. You would so think. you're saying that he would actually make kind of like a remote device by drawing something on the wall 
and the machine would do whatever it was he was trying to remotely have it do. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Just checking. <laughs> well, he was because quite- most people, so far, people, you know, people have a, a a way of kind of tuning in and tuning out when we're doing these kind of talks. But that should wake a few people up, <laughs> including me. <laughs> well, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but yeah, it's a type of remote control. It's not like any of our remote controls, but well, you're saying that the machine. Um, okay, I think you're saying the machine recognized it, or it sent a message visually, or what do you think it is, or do you know? Sympathetic vibration. Okay, could you explain a little bit about that then? Yeah, well, if you, you have two tuning forks tuned to the same pitch and they're separated from each other, and you strike one to where it starts to vibrate, the other will immediately respond to the first one. Today they call a similar process to that as quantum entanglement, where they affect one particle over here and, and, and a linked particle somewhere else will, will react to that disturbance. So are we, am I to understand then that the, I don't want to get caught up in the symbol thing, but you know, it's, it's interesting. So this symbol is being, let's say viewed by me. And let's say be viewed by me. Am I connecting my view to the machine or is the machine also being disturbed, or are we are, are all of us involved in, let's say, the consciousness or the awareness of the symbol? Is, is that clear? Yeah, but I don't think that's how it worked. Okay. I, I see. He was working with um, frequencies of thought, so he had identified a number of frequencies with a a number of different kinds of thought. You know. So when he created a symbol which represented to his mind a certain energy state, and he programmed that into the dinosaur or the machine, whatever the machine was. So whenever he drew that symbol, that's the energy cord or signature that would resonate with that machine. Does that make sense? Well, it makes sense if, if I... If I I'll say what I think you said, just so that I can understand it. Was it was it then, Keely? This is Keely. Was it the thought of the symbol? It was like the chicken and the egg for a second. So did Keely have the thought, put the symbol up so I would know what his thought was, but the thought had already been received through... Um, the sympathetic vibration, because as a musician, I understand the concept of the tuning forks. But there, I, I actually, I feel more comfortable with the tuning forks because one is over here and the other one is over here, and then uh, we can see the sympathetic vibration. You can do it with piano string, you can do it. Mm-hmm. This one, I have, I'm, I'm, I'm just having a difficulty getting in the sense that I don't know which is first, <laughs> the thought, <laughs> the symbol. Whatever. Um, I think I'm clear about my 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 misunderstanding or whatever it is. Well, uh, thought mind 
is outside of time and space. So what comes first or what comes second is, is kind of irrelevant. We also have to look at the context in which that story was told. Uh, he was demonstrating his machinery to an audience of people in his laboratory. And uh, he didn't really need to draw the symbol because he already had the thought. He drew the symbol as a, as a demonstration. So the symbol the was for me to see. It was for me to know that this was his thought, and then I and then the machine responded. Yeah. So it was, like basically, it was it was for me to understand what was going on, not for him, and not for the machine. Yeah, because he uh, he had already started the machine in his mind, and he just drew the symbol so you'd have something to relate to. Perfect. I mean, if he just stood up there and made the machines run and everything with, without doing anything, you would not get anything from the presentation. Right. right. And incidentally, this was just for to bring people up. We have a, an actual show about this machine. It was called the Dynosphere. Is that correct? Yeah. That's right. Well, he made hundreds and hundreds of different machines. Well, the one that off, you the one that yeah, you had it worked off these principles. And but I happened to replicate the machine that's called a Dynosphere. Yeah. So I only made one copy of of one of his hundreds of machines that he made. And uh, we don't know what the machine was in that story. We're assuming it's the same type of machine. Contains a neutral center or equilibrium or vacuum, what we call it. He called it a neutral center, by the way. And um, <clears throat> and that was one of his greatest discoveries. Well, how, how to create an artificial neutral center you know, like Russell's stillness, magnetic still light. And um, so it's quite an accomplishment. I don't I don't think Keeley's going to get recognition for what he really did for a very long time because science hasn't caught up to it yet. Right. So how can, they, how can they recognize what he was doing, you know, until they, until they can do it? And then they're still not going to give him credit because they're going to claim credit for first discovery. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's, uh, so let's, let's apply this to uh, our, our topic today, which is uh, uh, Walter Russell. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about, let's talk a little bit about what he did that, that coincides with what we're talking about. Yeah, he made two machines that I'm aware of that had, that tapped into this stillness. And one generated electric uh, current and the other one generated heat primarily I think they both did the same thing only the second machine he modified the design to get the heat gain instead of just electricity and I haven't studied that particular machine yet because I haven't found his original drawings Uh, the first machine I do have drawings you can find them on the web and um, he had a little mechanism in the center of it that that while you have this thing in balance, he built a machine in such a way that it was not in balance. And the nature of that neutral center or that force is to always be in balance. So if you create an unbalanced situation, it naturally wants to be in balance. So it's just going to, like a dog chasing his tail, round and round and round and round because it wants to be in balance and it can't, but it keeps wanting it. 
and I believe that's the way he did that that first machine. I call it an optical gravity optical something device. And we'll try uh, to get a picture of that and, and yeah. show that one. Well. Yeah, there's quite a few pictures of it on the web, and and uh, we were going to replicate that because it's kind of simple and construction wise, but uh, it's going to take a lot of money. Take a lot of money to replicate that device. And uh, so we didn't do it. But um, see, that's the uh, part of the nature of this neutral center and this state of balance or the state of vacuum or whatever you want to call it. By the way, there's a list of synonyms for that on the SVP wiki. It's just type in the word synonym for scalar or synonym and the word scalar. And it'll pop that list up. There's over 100 terms on that list. 100 hmm. different ways that other people see this state of energy. And um, we have to go there. And the reason we have to go there is because the inner nature of this field, which you can't detect, you can't feel it, you can't see it, you can't measure it, there's no way you know it's there unless you're in this higher mindset is one of its major characteristics is it's what one of the synonyms is love um, on the SVP wiki. And I'll post a few of them so people can see them immediately without having to like go up, but they can look for all of them if they want. Yeah. Yeah. Just show the link and then go look at it themselves. And each of those synonyms is connected to how that person used that synonym. This is the other problem with the Russell thing. I'm going to back up here a minute because. Sure. If you read somebody else's words and that's all you do, then you're nothing more than a parrot. A parrot doesn't understand what it's saying. It's just repeating what somebody else said. And there's a lot of people that do that with, uh, Russell and Schellberger and Steiner. and I mean, we were taught to do that in grade school. All the way for 12 years, we were brainwashed to do that. Repeat after me, and you'll get a good grade in your test. Well, to get a handle on what these guys are doing, you have to go beyond that. You have to ask yourself, well, what's the meaning of the term that he is using? And why is he using that term the way he's using it? And you'll discover that there are subtle shades of definitions in all these terms. And until we're talking about about context, it's within the context of whatever it is you're looking at. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah, that's oversimplified. But when you when you when you (laughs) yeah when you dig deep into what these people you know what does he mean by the word sympathy? You know what we use that term today in general. Because we feel sorry for somebody, right? The true definition of that word is love. We feel as somebody. We feel the way they feel. Not that we're sad. <laughs> we're not sad. We just feel the same way they feel. I, I am sympathetic with what you're going through. You know, I, I understand. I feel it, you know. And until and unless we dig into the definitions of these terms, the real definitions, if we're studying Keeley, we get a dictionary way back in the 1890s or 1900s, and they use that dictionary because that's the dictionary he used. 
you can't use today's dictionary. The modern dictionaries are crap, absolute crap, except maybe the Oxford Dictionary. But that's been the thing. So if we if if all we do is read the words that they wrote, we're not going to get anywhere. We're just going to be another parrot. So, yeah, so I yeah. mean, I understand this. I understand this personally right now because I'm actually reading. The Secret Doctrine by uh, Madame Blavatsky, and and that, that is a, a that's a <laughs> that's a big book. Yeah. <laughs> but the point I'm making is that it is filled with words and terms that I had never heard of. Yeah, and I spend more time looking up definitions, and of course, I'm I didn't think I, maybe I'll start using Oxford because. I don't feel like I'm getting the real definitions from the other dictionaries that I've been looking at. That was very, very important for me. Sorry to be so uh, personal about it, but it's probably worth knowing. So continue. Yeah, continue. uh, A good story about this is when I first got into this, I couldn't find a definition of the word sympathetic that seemed to fit what I was reading. And I looked and looked in dictionary. I eventually wound up with 50 dictionary. More, I got more than that. And uh, couldn't find a definition at work. And I was walking through a flea market in an open field in Missouri someplace, and it was raining. <clears throat> and here was this medical dictionary sitting there getting wet in the rain. And I flipped it open to the word sympathetic, and bingo, here was the definition I've been looking for. So it's just a way of saying not every dictionary defines every term the way everybody's using that term. I mean that's you can cast that in concrete. You can you can carve that in your forehead. Because if if all you could do is you go to the nearest dictionary, the uh, I mean there's so many collegiate dictionaries and running around today that it's bullshit. You, you you're not going to get anywhere. You're going to have to dig for those meanings. Um, speaking of the secret doctrine, um, Blavatsky used the term laya, L-A-Y-A, and that's a synonym for what we're talking about. That's interesting. I, I was, I finally gathered that from context, but I, but yeah, it's good to have it confirmed. Um, I'm looking over here. Um, would you want to comment a little bit about the Universal One? I think that's his most famous manuscript. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. It's a it's a, a large book, large format book, and it's got profusely illustrated big book, and it's the illustrations that gets everybody's attention because it's it's got illustrations in there that don't quit, right. and some of those illustrations, most of them, have been duplicated in his other books. Uh, the Universal One is like a crash course. I mean, here's the whole thing, guys. Right. And he dumps it on us, and he goes through and he reads through this thing, and he's, what did he just say? What did I read? You know, and, and, and he, it's simple English, but what does he mean by those terms? And that's what I'm referring to. you got to dig into the meaning of those terms, otherwise you're not going to you're just not going to get it. And even then, you may not get it. See how I've marked 
marked up my copy. <laughs> That's an expensive that. book to be marking up, but I but I appreciate what you're doing with it because well, there's nothing yeah. worse than just having a book for the sake of <laughs> the fact that you bought it. Well, I don't mark up my books. Uh, years ago, I had a made a deal with Tim Binder, who used to run the the Russell University, because we both believed that Keeley and Russell were talking about the same thing. So he gave me a copy that I wow. could mark up. And then later, when Yashahika was president, still working on the same project, I said, he gave me another copy. Wow, so I, lucky. Can I, get one for me? <laughs> well, I was doing all the work, and they gave me the book. Here, you're, you're doing all the work. We'll give you a book. So I marked up both copies, and, and one of them disappeared. I think somebody walked off with it. But Well, yeah, I mean, it, when you see it... Um there's an actual YouTube uh, simulation, which is interesting. I was looking at it. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, so the thing is, um, he talks about the secret of light. <laughs> Would you like to comment on that? Yeah. Well, what's his definition of the term light? I don't know. <laughs> Mine. I'm coming over to you now. Um, you can look it up on the wiki. You know, I put... A lot of his work into the wiki, I mean, a lot of it, because I'm trying to track the meanings and context and definitions of all these terms. Well, he says himself that it's the light of mind that he's referring to. So it's consciousness. It's awareness. So it's the in, in uh, let's say, from Patanjali's, uh, uh, he calls it the inner light. Yeah, same thing. You know, all these guys are coming at this topic from slightly different context. So their jargon, their use of words is going to be a little bit different, which is why we're taxed with deciphering, okay, here's Russell. He uses the word light. He also says light means mind. Um, you go deal in Keeley and he says, well, that's a compound inner etheric force. And, and you start to piece this thing all together, all talking about the exact same thing, but coming at it from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. In Eastern religion, you know, it's all different. So everybody, everybody's different in some degree. You talk to Bearden, you read Bearden's work when he gets onto this subject. He's coming from a really high engineering level that if you don't have PhDs and master's degrees in engineering, you're not going to understand what Bearden's writing. And um, which I don't have any of those degrees. It took me years to figure out what he's writing about. Well, this is what he's writing about. <clears throat> and so we can break it down into a more general terminology use so that we can all kind of get on the same page and we know what we're talking about or we should get some idea about what we're talking about. And uh, the universal one is the God mind. The one universal one. I mean, what would that be? It had to be the mind of God because that's all the rest. Everything else is uh, what you call downstream here in Colorado. You know, everything else is derived from that. <laughs> right. Well, in the, uh, I always refer to the Vedas, but the, uh, Many of the Hindu terms are Godhead. Mm-hmm. I think that's the term they use, the Godhead. 
or at least that one of the things that was that's interesting about reading uh, Madame Blavatsky is she talks about the fact that the English language, uh, according to her, is the worst translation of all of these terms. Could be. I don't so, know. No, I mean I, I don't know either because I only speak English and it's all I it's all I know about. But I but having studied Sanskrit, uh, I, believe me, I can't. I'm, I'm a little bit okay. But I wanted to say that in my dealings with Sanskrit, especially with the the Vedic scriptures, I've noticed very often that the English language has one word transcendental or uh, I don't know what I want to call it a place or or see it's not a thought so it's like this experience that's the word it's an experience the English language has one word for this experience transcendental that's not true of other languages especially uh, in the Hindu tradition many of those languages have hundreds of words that have to do with different experiences that are part of what we call transcendental. So I can I think that I can understand when you talk about some of the things that that we're that we're alluding to now, especially with um, Walter Russell and, and certainly the other guys that we've been talking about that when they talk about this place, depending on the language, they'll say their mother tongue, they might feel that it's very difficult to, to, to give that experience, that term, in English. And yet, our the English language is so, I don't know what I want to say, westernized, it's so based on science, our our ideas of science that we're missing out, I believe, on a lot of this information. So, you know, even though, I, and I don't want to get off, I don't try, I have to get off my little platform here, but I'm trying to state that the difficulty that most of us are having, I believe, is this concept of terms that are in English and only give us a, just a smattering of, of what this could be. That's just my little thought at the moment. That's true, and you couple that with the piss poor education we got in public schools. I mean, <laughs> how many words? You must have had a horrible, a horrible experience in school. <laughs> I'm not saying I had a great experience, but well, yours must have been quite bad. Well, yeah, considering what I got, but. Um, well, basically, your expectations were not met. No, they were not. Not not even close. Not. Let's just say I was very disappointed. <laughs> but you don't get educated until you go out and start educating yourself. Right. You know, you're not going to get it in school. You're not going to get it in university. Technical well, you stuff. Could get it. You could you get, get it in school. You could get it in school yeah. if they were really educating but you you said it before, quite a while back in our, our uh, talk here. You used the term of the parrot. And that's the easiest thing to do. 
to make someone memorize something, give it back to you, and then give them a grade, a pat on the back for having said it. That's not education. Yeah, that's not education. It's a, it's a indoctrination. <clears throat> Good word. But, uh, but um, yeah, we have, is, that, is that in your list of synonyms? No. <laughs> you better add it. There's, you know, I get an attitude about poor education and, and these types of things, indoctrination and, and dogmatizing people and and um, putting them in boxes and putting blindfolders on them and just making them stupid. Well, we have to get out of the box that they want to keep us in and explode that box and just start digging and digging and digging and digging, asking questions. That's the most important thing anybody can do is just start asking questions. There are no stupid questions, especially in this world today. I mean, look where we're starting from. You know, you, I don't want to degenerate down into that kind of level. Yeah, let's <laughs> come on. We have so many great things to talk about we, here. Thank you so much. What you're saying <laughs> about uh, the Hindu religion, and, and um, you know, they've had thousands of years working right. on this stuff. And what do we got? Four or five hundred, maybe, and always warring with each other and fighting over stuff. And um, we have well, to. we're dealing. We're always dealing with, and I and I, I, now, of course, it's going to show up. Now I'm going to say it. We're, <laughs> we're dealing with five hundred years of Catholicism. Uh, yeah, that's true. But you know, if if. If you're a curious person and you want to learn, you want to understand, you're not going to let uh, school indoctrination hold you back. Or well, what I mean by Catholicism, well, or say or any other kind of Hinduism is a religion. You know, it's all religion. Every if if you believe in dogmatism and doctrine, then you're kind of stuck in a box. And if you want to be well, a scientist, the guy that 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 uh, I didn't mean to step on your words, but I'll just say this real quickly. The guy that blew me away and told me what I needed to hear was Jordan Maxwell. <laughs> when Jordan said to me, Bruce, the whole thing is political and the whole thing is religious. That's why I call this religio-political. <laughs> so, and then he went through that whole description that he does about just, just the one that I love the best is what the standard jury room looks like with the judge it's completely made from the church it's the church the pews everything is there so well, you know i always say Catholicism. it's the difference between uh, locked in education and having a free mind to explore a greater truth and if you want but, to understand you know, if you want to understand Russell Keeley or Schellberger or Steiner or, or a Blavatsky or Sigurd Doctrine, <clears throat> you have to make the effort to get out of those boxes. Yes. Because what they're teaching is out of those boxes. It's not in those boxes at all. And the biggest problem I've seen people have is they can't, they don't recognize they're in a box to start with, and they don't make any effort to get out of the box. 
So they look at Keeley or Russell or Schauberger or Steiner, and they say, oh, these guys are quacks. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's not their fault that this particular person won't make an effort to get out of the box. It's his fault, and it's his lack, and it's his loss. We all have to get out of the box. I agree with you, and I just want to say one thing on your behalf. It'll sound, it'll probably be difficult to kind of like circle, but let me just just say it. One day, one evening when I was having dinner with my father, probably in 1970, and I was spouting all this stuff, you know, Alan Watts and, and, you know, all all of the philosophy. My father looked at me and he said, and he was very serious when he said this, and I could feel it. He said, if all of this stuff is true, why haven't I heard about it? <laughs> now, this the reason I say that is because this goes back to what you're saying. Who's Who is responsible? This is my question. It's just a general question. Who's responsible for becoming aware? That's right. We've all been taught to be irresponsible. To be helpless, give everything up to some authority, usually unelected authority, and do what they say. If you want to get along, you got to do what we say, the way we say it, when we say it, and how we say it. And then you get these rebels that come up and says, you know, screw you. I want to know more about what's going on. And it's those rebels who move humanity forward. So you can be part of the the rebellion against the empire <laughs> of stupidity and ignorance, or you can, you know, sit back in your chair and do what they tell you, you know. The sheeple. Let's talk as much as we can before our time is up. Let's talk about some of the devices or some of the, th- I know you said there was one device that you're sure of, that you, or at least you understand a little bit of or studied from Walter Russell, uh, that I think differentiates him in a way from uh, Keeley, is that, or or any of these people we've talked about, Schomburg. Um, but he was so, when I looked, when, like I said to you before we did the show, when I was scraping the, the internet, looking at, at things that, that Walter Russell did, he was, from my point of view, more robust. Of ro- he was an artist. He was an inventor. He was, uh, I mean, he was like <laughs> so many things. You can't, there's a guy you can't put in a box. Yeah, he was not in a box. Um, he was, you know, he had that, what was it, 39 days of awakening? Where he basically talked to God for 39 days or ever how many days it was. And he he became one with the universal consciousness, universal one, universal consciousness. And during that time, he did a lot of this work. Just drew, you know, hundreds and hundreds of drawings and wrote his books and everything. And that's one of the advantages we have with Russell is that he wrote so much and it survived. We can find his books and read them. And we've never found Keeley's book, so we really don't know that much about him as a human being and whatnot. Same thing with Schauberger. It was originally done in German before the war, and then the war, you know, 
disturbed all that. And, and um, so Russell's got a great advantage in that his work did survive. And it has been made public, and it's been public for a very long time. And we can go to those books, and we can, if we pay attention, if we if <laughs> say, Russell, what are you trying to tell me here with this crazy sentence, you know? If you keep asking the questions about what he's writing and why he's writing and why did he write it this particular way with these particular words, you start making tremendous progress into his consciousness. He's trying to get you to change your consciousness throughout all his books because you're not going to get it, like I said earlier, with the Newtonian ego mind. you got to go to this higher level. And uh, he shows you how to do that. I mean, it doesn't just leave you hanging. He shows you, show you how to do it, meditation and prayer and stuff like that. And um, he was a magnificent human being. Um, you know, he could paint and he could sculpt. He taught himself how to sculpt marble and stone. And um, he left us a legacy that inspires people to read his stuff and try and understand him and try and figure out, well, he says that we can all do that. We can all wake up to this greater consciousness. And in his home study course, uh, he goes into that in great depth. And a lot of people all over the world have been studying that and learning how to elevate their minds to higher levels. (coughs) So we're not just parrots. So we become creative like he was. And um, I believe a lot of people have achieved quite a bit of self-improvement through his teachings. And uh, I recommend it. If, if there's anybody out there who wants to improve their consciousness, improve their creativity, improve their life, dig into their home study course. Yeah. And um, you're going to learn a lot about yourself because that's really all there is to learn. And you, you can change your life dramatically. Sounds like we're winding the show. <laughs> um, How much time we got? I don't. I don't know. I was just saying it sounded like a wind up to the show. But you know what? Um, what I appreciate most about you and and your uh, ability to talk to everyone is that. You're not trying to sell anything. I, I love it. Sometimes I get people on the show and it's, I feel like I got to shut them down. Because it's turning into an ad. The thing that you're, that you're doing that I like so much and what I really enjoy is that you're sharing your awareness um, with a group of people that hopefully either may have never heard of these things or, or just... Uh, turned on Timeless Voyager by mistake, I hope not. But the point is that that is what I appreciate about you. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what you are doing now besides your uh, apparent constant education of yourself? Well, I don't know that I'm doing that much. Um, the um, I'm always working on myself, more creative, 
uh, more productive, happier. So I'm always working on that. And I'm using the pointers that Russell put out and uh, the carpenter people wrote in their book. And, um, and the Keeley actually wrote about that stuff, too. I'm trying to use all that. Bob Proctor, you name it. Anybody out there is trying to help fellow human beings to be better than what they were yesterday. And, and um, the thing I'm really, uh, the, the various projects I'm working on is, is to better understand this scalar dynamic where we get non-motion and motion. I want to understand that so well I can write a book that other people can use to actually build things. And um, how can we translate what all these people have been saying in a, into a self-help mode where you can take this, these principles and these laws and you can make your life better? I mean, look at the world. It's a total freaking mess. And it's only because people haven't learned to control their thinking processes. Basically, that's what it boils down to. So how if, if they don't know that that's there to be done, they're never going to work on it. They're never going to look at it. They're never going to question it. They're going to think, oh, we're victims of karma and victims of the bad guys and victims of this, that, or the other thing. Says, no, we are co-creators. That means our minds can create what we want. If we develop the discipline and the humility and all that to actually those principles to work for us. That's what I'm working on. I want to improve the human condition. I don't want to check out of here, you know, whenever it is, and say, gee, you know, I didn't improve a damn thing. You know, the world's as bad as it was when I got here. No, I don't want to do that. I want to try and leave a legacy that empowers people, that helps them learn who they are, and how they can improve their lot in life. And, and those are the people around them, their families, their friends, their neighbors. That's all I'm working What else is there to work for? Do I have to accumulate a couple million dollars? Uh, I can only eat one steak a day, and I don't think I could do that very long. <laughs> you know? I remember one time I had a friend who, who uh, I, I don't go into like name dropping, but very, very, very successful um well, this is, you know, remember where I live. I live in Southern California, so I'm in Santa Barbara. So who do you think lives here? But a very, very successful Oscar-winning, Emmy-winning guy. And he, I had I, I knew them because they were interested. He and his wife were interested in, in my music stuff that I did in those days. So I was over at the house one day, and he said, Hey, Bruce, he says, uh, you, want, you want, to, want to see some of my cars? So I thought to myself, sure, why not? You know, so I, so I went over. The first thing I, I saw this is a long garage, <laughs> and so he said, and, and this is this this is this car, and I'm think I'm blown away because there must have been about nine or ten of these incredible automobiles that spanned you know time, and, and so here's what he says to me. You know, Bruce, I can only drive. One of these cars at a time. <laughs> I can't fix any of them. I have this guy. He shows me this guy. He, I said, he said, this guy lives here at my house. He actually not only drives my cars, he fixes my cars. I don't even drive these cars. 
I said to him, I said, well, why do you have them? He said, because that's what people like me do. We have these cars. <laughs> and it made me laugh. It's making me laugh now because I'm thinking to myself, yeah, it's what it's what people aspire to. <laughs> and it's kind of silly. And yeah, I, apparently, you know, you have to aspire to it and have it before you find out that it isn't anything. So, whatever. Listen. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on on the show today. We I really enjoyed this. This is nice. Uh sometimes it's it's good to to just kind of like be kind of human, you know, and and uh people always wonder sometimes like what are we doing here? What are we doing? I don't want it to be so dry that people just go, "Oh, that's interesting. Click to <laughs> to the next YouTube video." I hope I hope people found that to be uh, worthwhile. It's going to be interesting, or you know, you can you got the entire internet out there to find something of interest. Why would they tune into your channel? <laughs> so, <laughs> when they're listening to a conversation like this, they probably never heard most of what we're talking about, and it probably didn't mean anything to them. But I tried to put it in such a way that there's great meaning here, folks, and you might want to go look up some of this stuff. Because that give, gives them the initiative, you know. Okay, I'm going to go, instead of sitting back and saying, okay, just give me another beer, you know, and I'll be happy. But start them on a journey. You start them on a journey, and their life changes. And, and that's kind of what I'm doing. I don't expect anybody to truly understand everything I'm saying. I don't understand everything I'm saying. But there's a great amount of... Uh, knowledge and awareness out there to be gained if you take the first step but you got to want it you know you have to want it you ain't just going to fall in your lap so uh i'm always looking for the young people who really want to know more you know and they well i think you said it very very well uh, back in the beginning and that was just basically that you have to ask that question the question is you know like well, you didn't say this. I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase. You have to start out by wondering, is there something else? And if there is something else, the first question you have to ask yourself is that question. Is there something else? What can I What can I get? Is there something else besides, let's say, this material view of everything? And I think that, that that's basically what we're looking at here. You know, that question, you know. What is it? What is awareness? How do you get it? Can it be expanded? I've heard about it. Let let me find out what I can do, and that's how it starts. Yeah, yeah, and that's usually the path that people take to to break out of their box. You know, if you ask a question, that starts the breakage of the box. But if you're not asking any questions, you're, you're never getting out of the box, and your life's just going to be. Nine to five, same way it was the past twenty years and the next twenty years. But when you start asking questions, that brings the box down, and you can start. Well, it just gets to be a wonderful journey. Then, I mean, full of excitement and new things. I mean, <laughs> I can't even begin to describe the changes I've gone through when I first started breaking out of the box. It's an amazing thing. 
All right. Well, Dale, thanks so much for being on the show. And uh, for the rest of you, thank you for listening to Timeless Voyager. You know, I really appreciate your watching and listening to the series on both video and audio players. You know, there is one thing you can do for me as the founder and creator of Timeless Voyager, and that is hit that like button. Please subscribe. It really helps to keep me on the air so that I can keep producing content like the program you just watched. We can do that on a regular basis. So subscribing and liking are free. (laughs) That's the part that's so funny. Uh, So many people don't even think about subscribing. It helps us. So those small actions on your part are greatly appreciated. My name is Bruce Stephen Holmes, and I hope that your own personal voyage through life towards the development of your highest potential is a joyous and successful one. Yeah.